Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Lucas Klein. And uh, Lucas, you are a psychologist and psychoanalyst, and you contacted me in order to share some concerns and some information about what's going on in the, is it the American Psychoanalytic Society that's being impacted by left-wing radical ideology in a way that is is really problematic? Is yes, that's right, Leslie, and thanks for having me on. I'm a psychologist, and after that, trained as a psychoanalyst. They're two separate trainings. And there are a few things going on broadly in the American mental health system, which you may be aware of and your listeners may be aware of. But more recently, there are some troubles brewing within the American Psychoanalytic Association that I think are pretty significant. Uh, I recently published an article in the Manhattan Institute City Journal uh, entitled Psychoanalysts, Psychoanalysis's Racial Hysteria. And mm -hmm. so that uh, was a reflection of a criticism that I had of uh, some things going on in the field that I had posted to my professional listserv and uh, City Journal picked it up and published it so people can find that there. Uh, broadly, what's happening is that while the rest of the mental health field has essentially fallen by the wayside to woke ideology, um, and, and we can talk more about what that term means, uh, the battle for American psychoanalysis is currently ongoing. Mm -hmm. and. For that, American psychoanalysis deserves some credit. It is the last man standing, so to speak, uh, in a world that has really gone astray in some pretty outlandish ways. Um, what's been happening is that a group of, of fairly radical people uh, uh, took hold of the moment with George Floyd in 2020, where America descended into a hysteria and avoided uh, acknowledging evidence about uh, police brutality and, and the rest. And so this group decided to go out and prove the ways in which the institution of American psychoanalysis is, of course, racist, uh, bigoted, etc. And you can go down the line of the different uh, phobes that they claim that it is. They then dedicated an enormous amount of membership dues to studying racism and its effects in American psychoanalysis, even white supremacy. So they published a over 400 page document this past year outlining the ways in which they understand my institution, my profession to be a bastion of white supremacy and detailed some suggestions as to what to do, some guidelines for the organization as a whole. One of those guidelines was a or DEI ombudsman. So mm. translating that term should be race czar. That's really what it means. And they wanted one at every institution throughout the United States and, and throughout the national institution. Now, there are so many ironies and, and problems going on with this report and with that recommendation and others. But that's the basic tenet right now. Mm. And so you said this that the psychoanalytic association is really the last man standing. What what makes psychoanalysis um, what makes it different than uh, than other kinds of mental health? What made it less vulnerable to this DEI indoctrination? It's a good question. Um, the first thing that comes to mind uh, is I should explain what psychoanalysis is to people. If you've gone to a very skilled therapist anywhere in the world, they're likely informed by the Freudian tradition. 
whether they practice exclusively psychoanalysis or not, and that's unlikely, they're likely trained in the Freudian tradition to some extent. Now, what is psychoanalysis? It is a branch of mental health treatment of psychotherapy that is the most comprehensive at treating the individual as a whole. It is an in-depth therapy, often multiple times per week over many years, and it takes account of your entire life and tries to help you understand your personality, the ways in which your mind operates and interpersonalizes and helps you improve the ways in which you interpersonalize your history, the way in which you go about your emotional dealings and so forth. It's sort of, this sounds a bit uh, silly, but it's sort of the special forces for mental health, mm. if I could put it that way. Mm. One of the reasons that uh, people come to me and come to an analyst is that other therapies haven't worked. Shorter term therapies, therapies that operate exclusively on the basis of conscious understanding of the mind, of rational understandings, just haven't worked. And so they come to a more in-depth form of psychotherapy. Uh, called analysis. Now, why has that perhaps been prophylactic for the analytic institution against woke ideology? Well, um, it's typically been a very irreverent group of people. Hmm. And that's one of the things that attracted me to analysis to begin with. They don't take common understanding generally to, at face value. They don't tend to believe things that people say just because they say them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that is prophylactic for the institution. And it makes it more ironic that the people who are waving the flag of DEI and um, unfettered racism accusations against the institution would assume that a group of irreverent people who seek deeper meaning are simply going to throw up their hands and accept those accusations at face value. It must be really shocking, given that in-depth and, as you say, irreverent perspective that you're seeing a capture or an attempted capture in this field. And are, are you seeing a split among professionals and psychoanalysts? Is there a vocal split? Oh, yes, Leslie. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I'm often asked by analysts who I run with whether APSA is going to stand, and I can't see how it can. In fact, I'm going to be withdrawing my membership soon, and many others have. And there's an underground group of psychoanalysts that are forming that I'm a part of, and uh, most of them uh, agree with me. We need a separate national institution. Mm, okay, so an alternative um, association at this point is yes. really starting to form. Yes, and it would simply be an association that gets back to the business of psychoanalysis being uh, interested in psychoanalysis, mm -hmm. not in uh, uh, social fads or trends or accusations or politics. Mm. Can you say a little bit about your background and how you came to practice um, psychoanalysis? Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, really, I was uh, lucky to have my first psychotherapy course in graduate school taught from a psychoanalyst. And he became a mentor of mine, and I worked in his practice while I was in training, uh, an excellent guy. And then that uh, prompted me to seek to become an analyst. Um, when I got into private practice after my doctorate, I spent a few years working in forensics in both civil and criminal trials and so forth. And I've continued to do that and also hold a general psychotherapy practice. But you get very bored with the limits of what you don't know if you haven't undergone analytic training. And so uh, uh, I found myself needing to push 
the frontier of what I was capable of formulating inside myself while listening to patients. And that's why I went on to the postdoctoral training. It's five years and you have to gain an enormous amount of clinical experience with different people and control cases and so forth. And it came out the other end, uh, totally enriched. It transformed my life uh, through my own psychoanalysis through training. And I've had a couple and also my uh, training with patients. I can't imagine being a psychotherapist without being an analyst. I just simply can't imagine it. And so one of the reasons that I'm upset uh, with this group that is trying to radically make over my field is that it's been transformative for me, one of the greatest things in my life. And they're trying to turn my profession into a laughingstock, in my opinion. I, I would, I'm interested in hearing what, what is the relationship between the analyst and the client or patient? I, I and for for I guess reference, I I have a coaching practice. I'm not a licensed therapist, but I tend to practice with sort of a peer to peer, um, person centered perspective. And I take it that the psychoanalyst is positioned differently within the the patient and professional relationship. Well, that depends on the school of psychoanalysis. Okay. Uh, so analysis started off from Freud onward being a, uh, a free association practice. Yeah. And so the patient would lay down on the couch with the analyst behind them, writing down basically everything they say and so forth and interpreting now and again to provide insight and so forth. That has transformed radically over the years. By the way, Freud didn't even really practice that way. Mm. He was extremely humorous and personable mm. and connected to his patients. Um, he was not this neutral, reserved analyst that he's often uh, thought of as being. But nevertheless, uh, the tradition following Freud became somewhat um, overly reserved, in my opinion. Hmm. And up through the 1980s, um, the, the lore of the analyst sitting silently for long stretches of time and being overly refrained and restrained and so forth, um, there was some truth to that. Hmm. And then there were new schools of psychoanalysis that sprang from those problems, and those are called the contemporary intersubjective as well as relational schools of psychoanalysis where often I'll see people in analysis face to face even four times a week and and so forth and so will my contemporaries um now uh, I I actually think that that those schools of of new psychoanalysis uh, and and not just consigned to psychoanalysis, but the the intersubjective schools that have uh, promulgated in all different branches of mental health, ironically, have led to its downfall. And I'll tell you why. While it is true that an objection to the old school psychoanalyst who sits there silently for long stretches of time, and I've had a colleague who went through his own analysis back in the 60s and 70s, and he said that his analysts would be quiet for days. Wow. Uh, I mean, that's crazy making. That's just totally insane. Um, you know, knowing nothing about the arrangement, that's that's totally inappropriate and probably has a lot to do with why analysis took a, a nosedive for a period of time. Yeah. And it resurged recently um, for good reason. But nevertheless, it started off that way, let's say, back in the day when analysts would do that. And that caused a new school to try to make analysis more relationally relevant, more peer-to-peer, -peer, as you say, mm -hmm. more personable, more engaged. And that was great, but they went too far. Mm. And 
they were informed by the school of intersubjectivity and by the the what I would call radical contextualism. Hmm. And and that led to and I think has been deeply involved in forming a society where emotional resonance or affectivity or um, emotional disruption takes sway and is given extreme prominence over the rational. So there was a shift from looking at the uh, internal, the meaning making, the um, the verbal associations of the patient, things lodged in a sort of rational system mm -hmm. to observing affect and reaction and holding that paramount over anything in the rational realm of existence. Um, to date, I have not heard actually a compelling argument as to why that should be the case. Hmm. These new schools simply take it as a given that following affect and following emotional reaction is a deeper, more valid way of understanding human being than listening to the rational and irrational. Hmm. There's actually no good case for that. And and they've they've gone far, far too far in that direction and I think their having done that, Leslie, has laid the groundwork for uh, reports like the Holmes Commission that has come out recently accusing my profession of being racist. When people like me ask for evidence of that, well, of course, the Kafka trap is asking for evidence is in fact itself racist. Mm -hmm. I'm just to believe the emotional perturbation of mm -hmm. someone who is upset. Mm -hmm. Do you see how the radical contextualism has led into that problem? So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's really interesting. And I'd love to hear you talk more about that so I can understand all the dynamics there. Um, I, one of the things that, that, uh, I guess maybe this is just a lay perspective and with what training I have had on, on in mental health. Um, but it seems like there's a greater degree of training professionalism and authority that comes with, being an analyst. And so I could see this being in being an even more dangerous place to have ideological indoctrination take place within this kind of relationship where, you know, whereas if you're seeing a, a peer counselor or a, a, a person centered therapist or someone who is really on the same level with their client and to a great degree, you maybe don't have that same power dynamic, or at least to the extent that it seems like one could end up with in the relationship that a client or a patient would have to their analyst. That may be true. There certainly is a different level of seriousness to the treatment. Mm -hmm. um, people get into an analytic process uh, and engage in a, a necessary regression with the analyst. Mm -hmm. Really, uh, it, this involves reattending to very deep and tragic wounds in mm -hmm. the patient's history and in her lives. And so it's a very delicate space. You mm -hmm. know, it's a it's a surgical space, if I could put it that way, mm -hmm. in, in terms of psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. And so this is even more, it's more worrisome that a, a new cadre of analysts are undergoing training right now and who will become leaders in the field and, and providers of treatment mm -hmm. who are going to be looking for what they know as internal racism in people. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, race and racism may or may not be relevant to an individual's experience. It has to be specific to go into it uh, assuming that someone has that as a primary issue in their psyche is just mistaken. Mm -hmm. And it's going to lead people deeper into a mental spiral. 
Yeah, it it does. And when you say it's a surgical space, it does seem like there's a high degree of trust established. And so having this person come from this perspective, who if you're the client or the patient, I mean, this seems like a really a recipe for indoctrination. But also it seems it's really shocking that people with this kind of training could be susceptible to what is really a very superficial and sophomoric ideology. And how do you see people holding this? There must be a tremendous cognitive dissonance. Yeah, it's a great observation, Leslie. Um, Most analysts of my age and older think that this is nonsense, what's going on. Mm. But they're timid to speak out in public. Mm. It's just me and a few others, honestly, nationally, me and a few others. And when I submitted my criticism of the Holmes Commission report on my professional listserv, it it led to a veritable explosion. Um, And then I got, I don't even know how many, private emails in support of me saying, I just wanted to let you know that I'm really supporting you, so on and so forth. And I understand that to some degree. Mm -hmm. But I also think that analysts and, and mental health professionals need to, they need to stand up tall because the field is being taken from them. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it, these are sophomore uh, uh, ideas. These are, as you say, these are terribly shallow ideas. Mm-hmm. I mean, the idea that we're going to take something as basic as appearance mm-hmm. and assume something about someone's internal world is like the opposite of what analysis has aimed to do mm-hmm. on its most basic sense, right? So this is terribly ironic. You're right. Mm-hmm. When you say that they came, they they developed this report, and that was the Homes Commission report. That's right. How, what was their? What are their claims? Where do they claim to see this? Do they have any kind of backing, or is it just the same sort of empty circular reasoning that we keep seeing in DEI? It is the same circular reasoning. They start off with non sequiturs, circular reasoning, and so forth, in the introduction to their report, and then they 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 provide evidence. Mm-hmm. Now, Leslie, I'm going to tell you what that evidence was. The evidence was a survey. Mm, self-report. Self-report, a survey of people's feelings. Mm-hmm. That's it. And I'll give you one example. One example is when reporting on uh, experiences of discrimination, mm-hmm. there's a difference between white people in training versus BIPOC people in training. Mm-hmm. Of It was something like 27 to 39%. They ignore the obvious, Mm -hmm. which is that even on the high level of that rating, the majority of people of any race are saying they don't. Mm -hmm. They do not even talk about that. But they do talk about the seven, eight, nine, ten point difference in percentage of Mm self-report between races as if that's significant. And we have no idea what statistics they they use. They have no method section. Mm-hmm. They have no uh, uh, results section that you would recognize from a scientific paper. Nothing. Uh, it, you're left to wonder. They do say that the number of people was incredibly small in the BIPOC group. And I, I don't know how many were in there. It's They don't lay that out clearly anywhere. And based on people's self-report that, yes, they've uh, experienced discrimination, we're supposed to take that as veridical evidence that that is actually happening in the organization and make stunning changes. 
They did not uh, even bother looking into anything like admissions rates, um, passage rates, uh, approval rates of reports across races. They didn't bother looking into any of that. And by the way, even if you did look into something like that and race uh, turned out to be a causal variable, in other words, an independent variable towards an outcome, even then you wouldn't necessarily know that racism is the mm -hmm. cause of that. So mm -hmm. this paper was absurd. Now, I went through and, and made some very pointed uh, criticisms of this report, as I'd mm -hmm. mentioned, and posted mm -hmm. it to the listserv. They then had their methodologist that they hired from Boston University basically pen a reaction to me and submit it. In his reaction, his public published reaction to me and to a few others, he likened the presence of racism to the assumption that gravity is present in the world that scientists do not go about questioning whether gravity is present before they conduct experiments. He likened it to that. Wow. wow. That's how, that's how far this is. That's there's how there's no humility there. There's no humility that this is a new theory. This is a new theory of social dynamics that has really cropped up fairly recently in these professions. It seems like with every other new theory or new way of doing things, like I, I know from studying um, psychology and sociology that there's a tremendous amount of history involved in that study. You have to, you, you get to see the way the dots connected. So this, this thinker introduced this idea and then it was taken on board by this group. And then this is how we developed this theory. I mean, you, there's so much of that. And and yet with this, it was like it just was it just blossomed anew all of a sudden. And now it's it's not just here, but it's also unquestionable. And it's always been this way. And if you have any questions about it, then it's like you said, it's a Kafka trap. And this survey sounds like it's it sounds like a part of a research paper, but right. not it's like they just incomplete like they it, it does the organization have no fear that they're undermining their own credibility with this? Well, you're very right. It, uh, there's nothing wrong with survey data. Yeah. It's just it's the beginning of a discussion. It's in no way a capstone discussion. You're absolutely right, Leslie. Mm -hmm. And uh, the organization, the the uh, stakeholders and, and, and people who are senior in the organization, they 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 certainly are concerned about this, but they're taking the moderate approach where they think that this is just going to blow over mm. and, um, and they think that you can uh, play peacemaker and, and so forth. Um, what can I say? They're wrong. And this didn't, by the way, spring out out of nowhere. This has a lineage mm. in French postmodernism. Mm. You don't have to go too far back to reach Michel Foucault. And obviously, in his literature, if you can make any sense of it at all, uh, it, it's about power struggle. I mean, this is the this is the Maoist and and mm -hmm. also even Marxist ideology coming through. There has to be an oppressor and an oppressed. There just is. It's mm -hmm. it says it's as Hegelian as you can get. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and so I mean, this has been brewing and and changing hats across the generations. It just landed on this on this racialized issue in America recently, uh, obviously out of the wellspring of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. Did you see this coming along in the psychological profession prior? Have you seen elements of this or, or was this a predictable outcome 
based on earlier experiences that you've had in your career? Absolutely. Really? Back in 2006 or seven, when I was beginning my graduate school training, we started to have cultural competency classes. Mm -hmm. And those classes took the place of really primary and important psychology classes that focused on very traditional aspects of, of treatment. These classes were usurping those. And mm -hmm. by the way, cultural competency is a term that should scare anybody. What do you mean competent in culture? Mm -hmm. What exactly does that mean? That means there's a way of thinking that is correct and that is competent. There's a way of thinking that isn't. And we're going to show you the way that is, and you better get it. That's basically the message. And talking mm -hmm. to instructors in academic institutions now and students who are going through training, uh, it's gotten much worse, whereas it was a sort of mild suggestion when I was going through training that there is a correct way to think and you, mm -hmm. you ought to think that way. Now it is a severe proclamation, hmm. uh, basically written on billboards in the school. I I think that that was developed in part by Daryl Wing Sue. Are you familiar with his work? Sue and Sue, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I It's been a long time since I've looked at any of that. I tried to basically hold my breath until I got out of those classes and then never look at it again. Mm -hmm. But what is, what is the piece that you're referencing with Sue. Uh, the the cultural competency, I believe he was one of the people who developed this this program of cultural competency for psychological uh, education. And he's also if he's not the person that that coined the term microaggression, he's one of the uh, yeah. primary proponents of this idea and it's uh it's it's pretty I found it to be really maddening, really crazy making the whole theory of microaggression, what the way that we were taught this when I was in graduate school, it's like, it's, a, you know, you just describe a scenario and if somebody feels like it was potentially, there was potential offense, then that offense looms large. And it should be the thing that is, that dominates any, any consideration of, of what happened between two people. And we saw examples of this over and over in the cultural competency course that I had, which was called multicultural perspectives. And it just, it felt like there we're talking about the same thing, but if the players change races, then the entire thing is seen differently. The exact same script could be played out by two people of different races and you just switch the characters and it was offensive in the opposite direction. It's, and we just, it was, it was maddening and you couldn't question this. So yes. the, the <laughs> Sue, Sue and Sue is the cultural, uh, uh, the multicultural text for for a lot of counseling programs right now. It's entirely maddening. Mm -hmm. And the central problem in what you've just described is that, again, affectivity, mm -hmm. subjective perturbation holds sway over anything in the rational. It's forbidden to think about it. Once someone is upset, you're simply to accept that their upsetness is grounds for an argument itself. Mm -hmm. Now, anyone listening, look, your emotional reactions are important. I mean, for heaven's sakes, I'm an analyst. I don't disregard someone's emotional realm. But your emotional disruption is not a grounds for an argument. It is actually something that you should be highly skeptical of. You have to bring your rational processes to bear on the emotional realm. Otherwise, how exactly do you make decisions? 
Where does that lead, by the way? Imagine, let's, for the sake of argument, imagine 10 people uh, standing in a circle. We're going to call them society. This is society, 10 people standing in a circle. And we're going to evaluate how decisions are going to be made. Under the old rules, people had to think about and make rational decisions uh, based on looking at the other people, looking at their reactions and actions, and looking at the world outside of the circle in order to make decisions on what they're going to be doing, whether that's walking in a different direction, whether that's building a new hut, etc., whatever it is. Under the new system, it's whoever screams loudest. That's it. You're standing in a circle together, looking at one another, and whoever happens to scream the loudest is the most virtuous. Mm -hmm. That's the new system. It really is. To put it that absurdly is not absurd, actually. That is where we're headed. When we make accusations toward one another, if you simply question the accusation and ask for evidence as to its validity, that is taken as some sort of subversion to oppress somebody else. It's... It's the path to madness. You mentioned that that it's just yourself and a few other people who are speaking about this right now. Do you see any shift or any cause for optimism in that regard? Are more people starting to talk about this? Well, um, I think that there are people rallying behind pieces like mine and a few others. Uh, Dr. John Mills is a professional I respect immensely, and and he's he's written about this report and about this movement as much or more than I have. Um, and there's a few others, but honestly, Leslie, it's, it's like a handful of people across the country. Are there others starting to take what we're doing as, as, as grounds for emboldenment on their ends? Um, I hope so. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not actually heartened by, by what I see mm -hmm. again, because almost everything that I received from my work has been private, private accolades. Mm -hmm. Why is everyone so afraid? You know, I, I, I just spoke with Dr. Rick Boshart a couple of days ago. He's a surgeon and he's, um, late career. He's near retirement and he's talking about how DEI instruction and, and policies are impacting patient care, even in surgery. And he was very kind, and he wrote a, a piece for his Substack, um, basically saying that he's no hero and praising me for um, being willing to blow up my career at the at the beginning. You know, being able to uh, stop while I'm in training, and it's basically cost me a career that I could have had. So he's he's giving me a lot of praise for for taking that step then, but I really think that so much praise needs to be heaped on people who are mid and late career who are willing to come out and talk about these things because it is tremendously difficult to challenge your professional networks for lots of reasons. People have so much imposter syndrome and feel like they need that credential and that backing of the network in order to feel like they are who they are. It's part of their identity being a part of these professional networks. And for lots of other reasons as well, that's, that's your, that it's so much of your life has been invested into the career that you have and the reputation you have. And one thing I hear over and over, uh, over and over and over in comments and in speaking with people is thank God I'm old 
I don't have to deal with this. It's going to be a problem for the next generation. I'm just glad that I am X age and now that's not going to be my problem. So this, and, and it's not even necessarily really old people who are saying this. I mean, I'm almost 50. This is something I hear from people who are my age. Like, thank goodness my career is almost behind me. I don't have to deal with this, but Mm -hmm. I think there are lots of reasons why people don't speak out when they're mid and late career. I think that there it's, it's terrifying to go against your cohort and your and your colleagues, but also you're looking forward to all the things you look forward to in retirement. You don't want to set off a hornet's nest and find yourself knee deep in some new controversy right at the end of your career. And I really think we need to celebrate the people who are willing to do this because it's it takes tremendous bravery and it comes at a huge cost. It's not just the early career and student trainees who are incurring costs in this. I think that's right. Um, It's also useful. What you're saying brings up for me the following. It's useful in terms of evaluating which side you want to be on, so to speak. And Mm -hmm. I, I do think that there is one side or the other on these sorts of issues. I don't think that there is an integration possible at this point. And I can say more about that, but let's take that as a premise. Um, If you look at one side, you feel scared that if you oppose them, mm-hmm. you're going to be churned up and spit out. You're going to be abused. You're going to be harassed and pursued. The other side doesn't do that. My side doesn't do that. So which side do you want to be on? The side that allows you to oppose them and talks with you and engages in conversation and arguments, doesn't take the arguments personally, or the side that takes your opposition as grounds for Uh, a harassing of you, a a dethroning of you from your profession. In other words, an aggressive attempt to stop you from talking. Mm -hmm. Those are the two sides. And uh, I guess, yes, people have, they have to make financial decisions in their lives. I'm I'm sympathetic to that for sure. They're worried that there's going to be some kind of um, blowback and so forth. Um, I would encourage people to consider that that's not as true as their emotional reaction might suggest to them that it is. Again, we're going to use the the rational part of ourselves to to litigate uh, against the emotional fear. We're not just going to take your fear, uh, dear listener, as somehow grounds for a conclusion in and of itself. You're scared, but how reasonable is that? How reasonable? I actually think, and my experience has been, that when I have started to speak out broadly, that it has separated the world in terms of people who I really want to be around and be connected to and who enrich my life versus those who never were my friends and never were trusted colleagues to begin with. It has only clarified my life. And I have met new people who have been so enriching for me. Uh, You know, Mark McDonald comes to mind. He's a friend of mine now from Informed Descent Podcast. He and Dr. Jeff Barkey uh, run a great podcast and I'm glad to have him as a connection. I've met many other people through my own podcast and, and certainly many, many more through sending out the kinds of honest critiques that I've done and, and, and new groups of people have emerged. I think you'll actually be surprised as to how many people you source and surface by emboldening what you believe to be true as opposed to uh, muffling yourself and, and, and providing sort of middle speak out of fear that you're going to lose out, I would encourage people to to really consider what's likely. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really, really great framework to lay out. I, I like the way that you put that. And I think that that's been 
that's been my experience as well. And the experience that many people that I've spoken with have had the being silent because you're afraid is really isolating. It's really lonely and soul crushing too. Yes, it is. It's soul crushing. Yeah. Very well said. And even if you will lose a body of connection, it's a, it, it's, if it's based on isolation and fear, then it's a pretty superficial connection that you have. And if you actually are willing to engage honestly and from the heart and authentically and based on your values, you will almost certainly make connections with people who are also willing to do that. So even if you have fewer connections in one sense, the connections that you do have will be richer. I think that's entirely true. It's been my experience. It sounds like it's been yours. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess we're both encouraging people to to consider that for themselves. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. And you mentioned that you have a podcast. Could you say a little bit more about that? What topics do you speak about? And sure. It's work? called Real Clear Podcast. And I speak about so many things. Uh, often I have mental health uh, issues that I'm, I'm discussing. I had Miriam Grossman on from Matt Walsh's What is a Woman? Most recently, I've had other psychiatrists like Richard Creighton, brilliant man, uh, and so forth. And, and I'd mentioned Dr. Mark McDonald. I've had him on. Mm-hmm. And I've also had economists on uh, to talk about various issues. And it's sort of the, um, it is the uh, cross between psychology and politics. Mm-hmm. That's my show. I have a monthly co-host with Wilford Riley, who is a brilliant political scientist from Kentucky. And so he joins me monthly to talk about various world politics and domestic politics issues. So broadly, it is politics and psychology and an intermixing of the two. That sounds fascinating. And do you put out an episode every week, every few days? It's it's every week at least. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when I have a fire lit under me, it'll be multiple times per week. Well, I'll make sure to put the link to your podcast and to any other anything else that you'd like to share in the description. Is there any other work that you have out there that you'd like to direct people to? Uh, not at this time. Uh, just uh, what I what I publish is always available through RealClearPodcast.com. I am penning a book right now. Uh, who isn't in modern times? And that'll be forthcoming in the next probably two years. But that's down the road. Yeah. And you mentioned that you don't feel a lot of optimism within the the psychoanalytic association and people speaking up. Do you have, what is your sense of where we're going culturally with regard to all of this race politics and race and gender politics is really, I don't know how to say it, woke, social yeah. justice, uh, Identitarianism. Yeah. Uh, writ large across race and gender. Mm-hmm. Where are we going? Gosh, what are our options? Uh, I guess our options are somehow maintaining uh, integral connections with one another, which just in a general sense, I, I hope can be done in any society. Um, and the other is separating. Um, well, mm-hmm. we're seeing a lot of separation going on in the country right now. And I've been saying for a long time that America is balkanizing. Mm-hmm. Um, and each side has blind spots. You know, I'm not saying um, red side good, blue side bad, if you're talking about uh, politics in that manner. They each have blind spots, but they are finding it so much more difficult to tolerate one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've always had divides. If you look back at sociological data going back across the decades, we've always had uh, severe divides on what we believe to be true and virtuous and so forth. 
but we've been able to tolerate one another much better than we are now. It is that intolerance across the face of differences that distinguishes this current generation and time from previous ones. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that probably is going to spell out a further secession from one another. And we find uh, evidence for this position across relational studies, right? You're aware of the Gottman studies on, on couples. Mm -hmm. Well, what, is the, the, what are the two emotions uh, that, that predict divorce? Well, what is it? Uh, the he's got the four horsemen. Yeah, so well, primarily criticism, disgust, and and contempt. Contempt. That's right, and yeah. primarily disgust and contempt. Mm -hmm. If you have those two emotions beyond a certain degree mm -hmm. between a married couple, there's something like yeah. eighty-five to ninety percent accuracy that you can predict their divorce um, if it's not resolved. I see that same series of problems between mm -hmm. people across the United States right now: disgust and contempt, and so that has to spell out the same kind of prediction that the Gottman studies had that we're going to further separate. And beyond that, I don't know what happens. Wow. That is, that's an incredible thought. I had not thought about it that way, but I, I really think that's a brilliant analogy. Um, I have just been, it's very strange to, to try to hold a centrist position in some of these things. Like for instance, the, you know, a little while ago you were talking about two sides and I've sort of started to see it as almost three because um, there's a, it, it, I feel like there's these strange cultural processes and it's a process of disgust and contempt when you come down to it. Like the way that people get into these arguments online, it's fascinating to me and it's terrifying to me. I have only been using Twitter for about a year, maybe a little bit more than a year. And I haven't been a real heavy user of it, but I've recently engaged in some things where I've gotten a lot of, I've, I've gotten outright attacks from people. Like it's, it's the kind of cancel culture thing, the guilt by association and the, the really like severe uh, mockery, ridicule, and distortion of my own words shown back at me as if I've, you know, it's this, it's a really ugly, it feels like a, like a fighting in bad faith. It feels like. It's a cluster hitting, B platform. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's, true. It's it meant is. for cluster yeah. B. Social media is meant for cluster B people. But it, uh, what they, it illustrates yeah. is what I illustrate, what I see illustrated in the substance of some of these is, is a, a difficulty finding a center. So there's for instance, in the gender discussion, there are people who are uh, on the one side, you've got the trans rights activists who are viciously um, pro gender ideology and will make up endless weird pronouns and identities that everybody just has to conform to. And it's that same affect over everything else, kind of uh, the loudest person screaming in society uh, model that you're talking about. But on the other side, you've got people who will will scorch the earth if you even speak with someone who is who is transgender i mean you right. can't even so it's it's really interesting how these sides can't talk to each other and then neither of them can talk to anybody who's trying to sit in the middle and look at everybody as humans it's borderline pathology i mean it's really cluster b Splitting. and primarily borderline pathology and none of us want to think of ourselves as landing on a non-integrated spot and that's actually one of the things that is haranguing otherwise decent mental health professionals right now. They're all afraid of appearing borderline for mm. staking a position. Mm. Uh, there's a sort of um, 
uh, overly um, an overvalue on integration and yeah. and so forth because they're they're afraid that especially in the world of analysis if they don't come across with a sort of and I'm not saying that you're doing this Leslie but they're coming across with a sort of muted um, mm -hmm. uh, a moderate position on every single topic all the time mm -hmm. and you can imagine someone speaking in sort of a hushed NPR voice when they're coming up with this you know, middle <laughs> yeah. ground and that that's really one of the things mm -hmm. that's allowing psychoanalysis to fall into the wayside. Mm -hmm. But I do gather your your general point, which is that in in society right now, um, we've got a, a mechanism that is allowing for one of two things, either the creation of borderline processing, in other words, mm -hmm. the um, splitting, as you say, into good and bad, and then the wanton discharging of aggression onto mm -hmm. the bad. That's mm -hmm. essentially what the mechanism is allowing for. Or we have a platform that is simply magnifying and displaying those pre-existing tendencies in society. And it's not clear which of those two things is more true than the other. Mm. It could be both. Um, mm. But nevertheless, it's, it's further making us primitive. No question about it. Mm. Our capacity. Look, we used to have um, something called a, a social percolation of ideas prior to social media. What what this meant was you'd go to a coffee shop or you'd talk to your friends or you'd sit down for a meal or you'd sit down at a party and you'd all talk about things verbally together in 3D. And that was a social percolation. It's like a coffee filter, mm -hmm. right? And it allowed ideas to be formulated, metabolized, thought through, reasoned. We don't have that anymore. We've got straight caffeine to the vein. There's mm -hmm. no percolation. And this is overwhelming the American psyche. I mean, ideas have a flashpoint right to the world instantly. You don't have to run your idea by anyone mm. or rationality or reason. You simply have it and boom, there it is. There it is. Well, that is the formula for uh, primitive psychic functioning. Mm. Wow, that's, that is really interesting. Um, I, I think it's been such a, a saving grace in my life that I've had such a strong in-person network of friends. It's, I think, something that we all really need. And if people are very online, as they say, um, finding in-person contacts and maintaining good friendships in real life, I think is an essential thing in order to balance your life, your your social habits, your mm -hmm. personality. Yeah, I think you're right. Mm -hmm. Entirely. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I'm, I'm really grateful that you reached out to me and that we got to talk. I think I... I kind of want to play this back to myself and think about some questions I might have for you because there are different different areas I would love to hear more about. So perhaps we can have a follow-up at some point if you're interested. Well, I'd be very happy to, Leslie, and thanks for having me on. It's been a great pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much.